I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Our guest today is Dr. Siegfried Derauschewitz, an anthropologist and director of the Brunenberg Castle Museum in South Tyrol, Italy. Welcome to Brunenburg. I've been given the dubious privilege of actually taking up two sessions. Is that still correct? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily something uh, one uh, necessarily wants, but uh, part, the first part of it will consist simply in trying to explain a little bit where we are and why, why you are here, ultimately. Uh, and only then, the second part, I will read from my paper on animals. Uh, you see, for many years, 21 to be exact, uh, I was a director of the Schloss Tirol Museum, which I had the privilege of actually building and constructing uh, literally as a history or cultural history museum, something that was actually missing from our landscape. But uh, it was sort of a challenge in the sense that when in 1972 uh, Schloss Tirol, the cradle of this geopolitical uh, entity known as Tyrol, from which it gets its name, was transferred from the Italian government to the local authorities, the Autonome Provinz Bozen. As usual, the politicians had no idea really uh, what to do with it. They had clamored for it and they wanted it back and so on, but once they had it, uh, they really didn't know, you know, what shall we do with it. So it went through uh, various stages of, they tried to make a kind of a mixed bag, uh, put in some archaeology, put in some contemporary art and so on. And then in 1991, anyway, I was sort of abkommandiert from the Denkmalamt, the Department of the Preservation of Monuments here in the local province. Uh, and, you see, I had a big ally because that very same year, Ötzi decided to emerge from the ice. <laughs> and of course that, he was my greatest ally to the extent that it was, became suddenly clear that Schloss Tirol was not suitable for an archaeology museum in the classical sense because it would mean one would have to go back to prehistory, to periods that of course preceded the building and preceded the Middle Ages not to speak of the whole technical question that, of course, something like that needs to be in an urban context with all the technology that is available. The second um, stroke of luck, you know, I do believe in Hermes and the lucky find. <laughs> and so uh, the local, um, uh, yes, fire department came to me because there had been some fires, Buckingham Palace, etc., etc. And they said, look, we don't have enough water here at Schloss Tirol in case of a fire. So you must build a reservoir 
and we started digging. But of course, anywhere where you started digging around Schloss Tirol, all kinds of things started to come to the surface, uh, which meant, no, you can't dig here, you can't dig here. So we kept going further south, down into the vineyards. And finally, I thought we were going to be safe, because it was all vineyards. And sure enough, for about two and a half meters, nice humus, earth, and so on. And then at three meters level, suddenly a circle, a semicircle. Obviously, what seemed to be the abscess of a little chapel. Well, uh, all right, everything stopped. Hand digging, so for two years, scraping away at it. What, the end, what it turned out to be, was not a little chapel. It was actually a free absidal church, the oldest of which was actually one of the earliest Christian churches that we know in South Tyrol, meaning 4th, 5th century uh, AD, and, uh, you know, quite a uh, spectacular find because nobody knew of the existence of such a church at that place. There was no record, no written record, no oral tradition, nothing. Well, uh, it left us again with all kinds of open question marks because we found the tombstone of a mysterious lady. Uh, we assume she was a lady, maybe she was a child. Lobezena Alba Deposita. It was one of the, again, very rare pieces uh, of actual a written document, you might say, from 5th, 6th century. But one also saw the church later had been expanded in Carolingian times and had existed up until more or less the year 1000 when it suddenly disappeared. The, or at least the great parts of the walls were taken off. And that coincided with the building of then Schloss Tirol, which is a different story altogether, and I won't go into that. The reason I've mentioned these two things, Ötzi and the uh, Paleo-Christian Church is that whenever I would stand in front of the castle and try to explain to my visitors, you know, where we are and why this place is so important, it wasn't just a matter of the strategic importance of the fact that the Via Claudia Augusta, the Roman road, used to coast the mountains here and that you could sort of imagine uh, these... Uh, Roman troops and probably then the, the first missionaries coming along these roads and then the wine trade coming through, crossing the Alps, all of that. But in fact, much before, this, holy, this whole area must have been a holy precinct because we find beginning from the menhirs that were found just at the foot of Schloss Tyrol, these big uh, two really extraordinary remains of what must have been once a very large megalithic culture here, uh, which was, to a large extent, of course, destroyed by the new religion coming in. Uh, some of these men here were then actually, one of them was found in the Finchgau, uh, upside down, used as an altar plate. Mm -hmm. So the message was quite clear, right? And we did have all kinds of recordings, you know, of these missionaries coming here and saying, you know, the people here still insist on venerating stone idols and things like that. Uh, so 
whether we go back to, shall we say, the Bronze Age, which, to which these menhirs belong, or whether you were to take a long hike up to the seven lakes which lie behind these mountains here, where we actually have something that, with some exaggeration, but not too much, one could call the Stonehenge of the Alps. The fact is that it is a ex very, very large expanse, but tourists, fortunately, just walk over it and don't really realize what they're walking over it because it's just a big field of cupstones. Mm -hmm. And these cupstones are distributed over a very large area. And, you know, people who have had the courage, shall we say, to work also with some hypotheses, not our normal archaeologists, they won't touch it. Mm -hmm. They make a long, you know, it's like Mark Bloch saying the historians have made a long detour around the Misthäufen der Geschichte, the manure piles of history, uh, which of course I don't as an agro-historian. But uh, the fact is uh, the archaeologists do tend to make a big detour around such things that do, they cannot explain. And this is one of them. But the really you know, most serious and really not that original, shall we say at this point, uh, observation is that this must have been used as a uh, astronomical observatory because it was obvious that when uh, that they were watching the phases of the moon, it was a calendar. You might just call it, you know, like Hesiod's the way it works in the days, uh, a farmer's almanac. But of course, the farmer's almanac contains other things as well. You know, what is when is the right day to take your cows to the bull? When is the right day to sow? And so you have this mixture of, you know folk tales in Tyrolean uh, tradition where uh, it's always the Saligen, these fairy women that will come and tell the farmer, okay, power jetzt an, jetzt geht der Paradeiswind, which means uh, farmer, go out and sow because there is a wind blowing from paradise, which was this ancient notion that the doors of paradise sometimes just open just a little bit and when that air comes, that wind comes through, it is like feng in the cantos, a positive wind, a fertile wind, a wind that will bring uh, growth. So anyway, uh, all of this simply to uh, indicate that throughout these many centuries uh, there has been a continuity of human presence on these sunny terraces Right here, Brunnenberg uh, again has its own stories that indicate some perhaps cult of the house snake, which was, I mean, I've collected so many stories here in this particular region that one could do an interesting comparison, for example, with Lithuania, Lithuania where the cult of the house snake was still very alive, even some 30 years ago, at least the dissertation was written on it and so on. So, uh, you know, here it's, uh, it's the story that a young shepherdess uh, stands in front of Brunnenberg and looks after her goats, shepherdess, goat her, and uh, anyway, a little snake comes by and every day she gives her a little bit of milk, which is pretty much the same story at the beginning of 
um, of, of Virgil's Aeneid, where there is an offering is made with, of milk, and the house snake comes and drinks of it, because the house snake ultimately represents the, uh, the, uh, the lares and so on. And so this something similar must have gone on here. The little snake is grateful for the milk she gets and beckons the girl to follow her. You might try it, and, uh, and then you, somewhere down here, there is a cave, and the little girl goes inside the cave and finds uh, great treasures, and anyway, she's, she's, she's all right for the rest of her life. There are variations of this story which are, are a little bit more moralizing and so on, but again, uh, the point being, uh, there is... Uh, Apich lost your role, uh, we found, or we didn't because this preceded my time, uh, was found a statue of Isis Fortuna, which is a clear indication that in Roman times there was probably some higher official stationed up there to make sure that the tolls from the Tull, which is still called Tull today, so it's, uh, the tolls would be collected and uh, other things, of course, administrative things, but being belonging to a certain higher class, he was a follower of Isis, and you know we know that the Isis cult was reserved uh, to a certain level of class, and we have, of course, the Mitras stone right uh, across there. Uh, quite a few uh, indications that uh, Jove uh, was venerated on the mountain passes here, and uh, we have a Diana, a uh, statue, fragment of a statue from Parchins. So this entire area here essentially has always been used uh, or has been the occasion for some form of cult, for some form of prayer, religion, uh, whatever. And uh, that, to my mind, makes it particularly interesting to be here and to uh, talk about things that may have to do with spiritualism and uh, mystical traditions and so on. Uh, both Brunnenberg, uh, which I remember my father was actually seriously digging here at the, in the cellars of this castle because one of the many legends, I've only told you one about this snake, but the other legend says there is a golden calf buried at the Anderschloss, Anderschloss Brunnenburg. The golden calf motif, by the way, recurs in a number of Tyrolean folk tales. And uh, there is only one night uh, in the Johannesnacht, this golden calf actually will appear, but it is guarded by two giants. And these two giants, uh, they don't do any harm, but they do like this with their fingers. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you are scared, then like everything, you know, the treasure will disappear. So it must have happened once before. Anyway, the treasure <laughs> disappeared. <laughs> and uh, anyway, my father uh, thought that he would dig at the bottom of here. The idea was to actually to see if there was anything to it 
like to, every castle has the tradition that there is an underground passage connecting it to the other castle, which of course geologically is totally out of the question here. Uh, but you know, you know, uh, these are things that uh, that one does, and uh, it's great fun for children to be able to partake in such. Uh, treasure hunts. <laughs> On a more serious basis, uh, Boris Derahevils was actually himself uh, quite interested in esoteric teachings. Um, of course, coming from the, as an Egyptologist, he dealt mostly, he wrote books about uh, Egitto Magico Religioso, about Egyptian magic. And this comes into play into the cantos, because when Pound then arrived here in 1958, he had in my father a conversation partner who would actually talk about such things and who would be able to tell Pound something new about a mythology that he had not at that point known that well, namely ancient uh, Egyptian mythology. And so we find then Kati and a number of, of, of references that go back exactly to the Egitto Magico Religioso. On the other hand, <clears throat> we have had, uh, or my father uh, invited people like Marius Schneider, uh, who for musicologists is a particularly interesting name because he had, uh, Marius Schneider wrote Singende Steine, and he has basically, he discovered uh, a kind of a hidden uh, code, musical code, in the architecture of certain Spanish uh, Romanesque uh, Kreuzgänge. Uh, and uh, anyway, and has uh, sort of made connections between the symbolism, medieval musical symbolism of these, uh, of these cloisters with actual ancient Indian uh, musicological symbology. And uh, Elemire Zolla, uh, another name that perhaps is known to some of you, anyway, uh, a founder of the uh, uh, Studi Religiosi, a, one of the few Ita serious Italian reviews that has actually uh, translated, he translated the teachings of Don Juan, uh, introduced a lot of the uh, Mesoamerican, Mexican, uh, Indian. Again, Pound too was very interested in Native American folk tales. In fact, one of the first things he had me do while he was still back there was to translate Jaime de Angulo's Indians in overalls. And Jaime de Angulo, again, a fascinating character to be rediscovered because he has unfortunately been largely ignored especially in his native California. But uh, there was there a little Turtle Island press, which was bringing out, again, these wonderful little books by Jaime de Angulo, who was essentially anthropologist, linguist, but then went to Taos and became a group, part of that group in Taos. All right, so here, just a few very sundry connections from uh, the Brunnenburg, as it were, visitor's book. Uh, I could uh, continue, and I hope you will all sign the visitor's book uh, before you leave this evening. And now I am about to, you know, just, uh, let's see, yeah, uh, to um, embark on, on something.
this chair is, 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 is a little bit wobbly. And so a few years ago, uh, up at Schloss Tirol, we did an exhibition <coughs> called Für Freiheit, Wahrheit und Recht, uh, Josef Ennemoser und Jakob Philipp Falmereier. Now these two characters, Falmereier and Ennemoser, really represent, as it were, some of the most fascinating intellectuals that have come out of this region. But as you can well imagine, they were not popular at all during their daytime, in fact, they were regarded as public enemies, as traitors, etc., because uh, they did not, uh, shall we say, simply uh, fit in into that clerical conservative power mesh, which, you know, Tyrol being, uh, in the words of Goeres, Josef Goeres, and his Münchner Gottseligen, it was a Catholic fortress, and it was to remain such, and no Protestant should ever set foot or get to own a piece of land here. Uh, no Jew, no other believer should ever taint this immaculate, uh, as it were, uh, region which was largely identified with a what the most popular uh, shall we say, personage, but also site that was visited in the 1830s. There were three of them. One was Schloss Tirol, of course, as the palladium of this country. Uh, then it was, was the house of the birth house of Andreas Hofer, which, of course, the freedom fighter. And the third was Maria von Merle. Maria von Merle was this young lady from Kaltern who had received these the stigmatized, one of these stigmatized virgins, and she was, as it were, turned into an icon of this Catholic Tyrol that would not, uh, you know, all around, you know, the, the Kaiser was making concessions to religious tolerance and so on, not in Tyrol. <laughs> anyway, well, things have changed a little, but in a diff not necessarily in a better way. <laughs> All right, uh, I will try to just stay within limits and stop when the clock stops. This is about Enemoser and about what Pound, Yates, and Enemoser actually, what joins, uh, connects these three very different characters. In, the November, in November 1913, William Butler Yates was getting ready to spend a few months in a small country house about an hour south of London, in Stone Cottage, far from the maddening crowd, which of course is not the maddening crowd, but that's a different story. He helped to find, he hoped to find new inspiration, catch up on some reading and work on some esoteric projects. The elucidations to Lady Gregory's visions and beliefs in the west of Ireland, and two essays, Witches and Wizards and Irish Folklore, and Swedenborg, Mediums and the Desolate Places. For conversation and secretarial functions, he had invited a young American colleague who had caused quite a splash with his iconoclastic ideas on art and poetry. 
He was one of the many admirers of the Irish bard, even though he did not share his fascination with spiritism and the occult at that time. Since Yeats' uh, eyesight, my own eyesight is, alas, not at the best, so I excuse if sometimes I hesitate here. Uh, since Yeats' eyesight was bad, Ezra Pound was asked to read out aloud to him in the evenings from books that Yeats had brought along, including some from his vast esoterica collection. Pound at first had feared that the dealings with the occult would take up much of their time, but as it turned out, these uh, secret things coincided with his own interests much more than he had expected. At Stone Cottage, he had planned to translate some Japanese no-plays sent to him by Ernest Fenolosa uh, and Ernest Fenolosa's widow. These medieval plays revolve around the apparition of ghosts and otherworldly beings from Japanese mythology. Obviously, uh, this kind of material appealed greatly to Yeats as well. But neither of them could have foreseen that the no plays would help Yeats find a new dramatic voice and influence all his subsequent work, causing that creative breakthrough which later led to his success and renown, Nobel Prize in 1923. Among the books brought along were Montfaucon's De Villars Comte de Gabalis, Robert Kirk's The Secret Commonwealth, and Josef Enemoser's The History of Magic, 1670, 1691, 1854. Many years later, near Pisa, Pound would reminisce, reminisce about those quiet days in Sussex and about Joseph Enemoser. Quote, at Stone Cottage in Sussex, by Waste Moor, or whatever, and the holly bush, who would not eat ham for dinner, because peasants eat ham for dinner, despite the excellent quality and the pleasure of having it hot, well, those days are gone forever, and the traveling rug with the coonskin tabs, and his hearing nearly all of Wordsworth for the sake of his conscience, but preferring Enemoser on witches. <laughs> this refers, of course, to Yeats. Pound, remembering his somewhat snobbish friend, disdaining peasant food, listening to nearly all of Wordsworth, uh, out of a sense of duty, yet really much more interested in Enemoser's history of magic, as it deals profusely with prophecy, witchcraft, and the persecution of witches and wizards. Enemoser's 1,001-page book appeared in Leipzig in 1844 and ten years later in William Howitt's English translation. William Howitt uh, and his wife Mary Botham deserve a footnote here as they offer us a glimpse on the particular brand of British esotericism. They both started out as Quakers, 
Williams published a popular history of priestcraft in 1833. Mary translated Hans Christian Andersen. After a period spent in Germany, where they probably got acquainted with Enemoso's work, they returned to England and devoted themselves more or more and more to mesmerism and to the occult in general. They consorted with the Rossettis, Dante Gabriel and his sister Christina, with Alfred Lord Tennyson and with Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and corresponded with Dickens and Wordworth. In 1852, William Howitt set sail for Australia in the wake of the gold rush there. On board, he translated the history of magic and later sent the manuscript to Mary for proofreading. She did more than that. She added a lengthy appendix of the most, quote, of the most remarkable and best authenticated stories of apparitions, dreams, second sights, somnambulism, predictions, divinations, witchcraft, vampires, fairies, table turning, and spirit rapping. Uh, upon his return, uh, William organized seances with Daniel Douglas Home, a famous medium. And the Howitts spent their latter days actually here in the Tyrol, curiously uh, enough not far from Geis. Mary Howitt is still remembered for her famous children's poem, The Spider and the Fly. Anybody know it? So much for Animoser's translators. Although Pound could not muster much enthusiasm for popular forms of spiritism and the occult, he had begun to apply some fundamental ideas of medieval mysticism, alchemy, even of mesmerism and magnetism to his own poetics, as shown in a number of poems predating Stone Cottage. In Mesmerism, written in 1909, he addresses Robert Browning as ye old mesmerizer and prays tribute to his ability to summon the souls of great men and having them speak in his dramatic monologues. In Paracelsus in Excelsis, 1911, the quote, sidereal spirit rises to the eternal peace of celestial bodies as an untangible fluid. Quote, and we that are grown formless rise above fluids intangible that have been men. <coughs> Pound finally became an alchemist and necromancer himself, in the alchemist attempting to conjure up all the lost beauty through the magic of language. At this time, he was forging a new poetical credo, which was to rid poetry of the blurred and trite language of, late, of the late romantics. Through, through clarity and precision, poetry would regain the liberating force and healing power of a divine epiphany, which it had with Dante and the troubadours. The no plays and the readings in Stone Cottage played an important role in this process. And so it came that the Tyrolean physician and natural philosopher Josef Enemoser was indirectly godfather to the birth of the first poetical avant-garde movement of the 20th century. As James Langenbach has pointed out, the growth of imagism depended on Pound's reading of Montfaucon, K, 
Kirk and Enemosa's History of Magic. It was probably Enemosa's clear ethical stance, his fearless intellectual curiosity and his deep respect for the clairvoyance, the clearer vision of the pagans, the Heller Sehenden Heiden, which appealed to Pound. Otherwise, he would not have recommended the history of magic to his fiancée when trying to explain to her, quote, the profounder sense of symbolism, unquote. In that same letter, he tells her that, quote, a symbol appearing in a vision has a certain richness and power of energizing joy. Something similar to what Enemoser intends when he speaks of the positive, imminent, vital force of symbols. Pound, he and Pound both shared the notion that myths arise out of the attempt to communicate through symbols otherwise unexplainable visionary experiences. Just take a look. You must ring the bell. Yes. <laughs> Never. <laughs> the points in common are many. Uh, time here will not allow a detailed analysis, but compare, for example, Enemoser's quote, a hospital should be a place, should, should be like a place of worship. Uh, I can speak of that, having been there in a, week, a week ago. Uh, a, a hospital should be like a place of worship, for only then will we be able to regain the healing priesthood of earlier days. Everybody carries in himself the power to magnetize, but one needs power combined with wisdom in order to apply it. This is animal. For Pound, it is the artist, it is the artist who embodies both visionary and healing powers, seen as the antenna of the human race. Quote, because he associates with gods, the poet is responsible for other human beings. And speaking of Brancusi, Brancusi, uh, saint and alchemist, quote, perhaps every artist at one time or another believes in a sort of elixir or philosopher's stone produced by the sheer perfection of his art, by the alchemical sublimation of the medium. The foe or the problem that has to be confronted is desensitization, loss of perception. Enemoser, quote, everything merely superficial is unpoetic and irreligious. And in Canto 34 derides the superficial trivialization of animal magnetism by the American middle class, uh, which was, you know, very in in those days. Uh, in the 1850s, this was happening in the 1850s, he himself, on the other hand, resorts to magnetic imagery only when trying to convey the utmost intensity of perception, as in the image of the rose in the steel dust in Canto 74, this liquid is certainly a property of the mind, 
neck accidents that an element in the mind make up, est agens and functions dust in the fountain pen otherwise. Hast thou seen the rose in the steel dust or swans down ever, so light the urging, so ordered the dark petals of iron, we who have passed over Lethe. Pounds, world unchanging, the world of fine animal life, the world of pure form, what the Neoplatonists sometimes called the anima mundi. Animoser, referring to Plotinus and Porphyry, writes, what the ancients called anima mundi is what we call magnetism, <clears throat> a universal cosmic force of nature. As Christian and Neoplatonists, he adds, an inner secret poet leads humanity with an unfailing thread through the labyrinth of space and time. In our breast lie hidden the eternal messengers of heaven and hell. And later, God is within us, not outside of us. To which pounds echo, quote, all is within us, purgatory and hell. Again, what matters is the quality of perception, the ability to perceive the radiant, quote, the radiant world where one thought cuts through another with clean edge, a world of moving energism, magnetisms that take form that border the visible, the matter of Dante's Paradiso, the glass underwater, from the literary essays. This leads to the tradition of undivided light, to the genealogy of light, to Plotinus, Pselos, Grosstest, Bacon. Animosers quoting Plotinus, the eye would never see the sun if it were not of the nature of the sun Helio Eides. Plotinus is described as a great healer who has command over images, shapes, and spirits that flow unceasingly from God's eternal fountain of life. Again, Enemoser. And in Canto 91, in the green deep of an eye, crystal waves weaving together towards the great healing. And Enemoser in the history of magic, procreation is more than just symbolically a projection of light into the darkness of night. The signatures in nature, Canto 87. In nature there are signatures needing no verbal tradition, oak leaf, never plain leaf. This is from John Hayden. John Hayden's English Physician's Guide, or A Holy Guide, 1667, was among the books in Yeats' library. Hayden took the doctrine of divine signatures in plants and minerals from Paracelsus, God placing signatures on plants and minerals in order to signal their healing properties to the Sorry, to the adepts. 
Animosis got, got it via Jakob Böhme, Böhme, another favorite of his, of Yeats. The shoemaker from Görlitz tells his followers that in order to see God and to recognize the signatures in nature, they have to become nothing to themselves and poorer than a bird. Finally, E.P.'s common rejection of all form of religious and non-religious fanaticism. Pound chastises, quote, the asceticism that is anti-flesh, followed by the asceticism that is anti-intelligence. In the history of magic, Animosers condemns any form of witch hunting and diabolization, which includes the persecution of so-called heretics, like the Templars. But, as we shall hear, he dared stand up against the religious fanaticism of his own time, which wanted to preserve the Tyrol as a pure Catholic fortress against the rest of the world. For this, he was accused of treason. But, so, who was Josef Enemoser? He was born in 1787 in a remote hamlet at the very end of the Passaia Valley, here in Tyrol, where he spent his childhood as a shepherd and cowherd. His father, a subsistence farmer, died when he was two, and so the boy was raised by his grandfather. Being a bright kid, the village priest encouraged him to continue his studies beyond elementary school. In 1809, Enemoser was 22 years old, and he enrolled to study medicine at the University of Innsbruck. Andreas Hofer, leader of the Tyrolean farmers that kept Napoleon troop at bay for almost eight months, made him his adjutant. He fought bravely, and as we know, in vain, as the Habsburgs surrendered to Napoleon and left the Tyrolians standing in the rain. Andreas Hofer was executed, 1810, and soon his fame spread all over Europe. Wordsworth dedicated four sonnets to him. Enemoser wanted to continue his <coughs> medical studies and landed in Berlin, where he immediately uh, was enrolled or made contact with anti-Napoleonic circles. In 1812, he was sent on a secret mission uh, to Britain to seek aid for the resistors. As an officer in Major Lützow's famous free corps, Lützow's Wilde Verwegene Jagd, he led a company of Tyrolean sharpshooters and was later awarded the Iron Cross for his bravery. In 1816, he completed his doctorate with dissertation on the influence of mountains on human health. He knew something about that. He got increasingly interested in the possibilities of curing patients with the help of animal magnetism. One of the mentors uh, of his mentors was the Jewish physician uh, David Korev, personal doctor of the Prussian chancellor and a follower of Anton Mesmer and his theories. In 1819, Enemoser published his first book. And that same, year, that same year, he was appointed professor of magnetism at the newly founded University of Bonn. 
From 1819 to 37, he ran a medical practice, he cured famous patients, married, had two daughters, battled on many fronts for a more humane treatment of the mentally ill. Uh, after initial enthusiasms, mesmerism and animal magnetism came under increasing attack. <coughs> Animoser became the target of vicious academic intrigues. He decided to leave the university and to return to Tyrol, where he hoped to make a living as a private practitioner. During one of his visits, he had expressed skepticism towards the widespread phenomenon of the so-called ecstatic, vir ecstatic virgins, who claimed to have visions, fall into trance, and, had, and who were regarded as saints by a large segment of the population. While Enemoser maintained that uh, there are enough miracles in nature, uh, and uh, he believed uh, the leaders of the clerical conservative forces claimed the ecstatic virgins were messengers sent by God to manifest the intention that Tyrol should remain a pure Catholic fortress, untainted by misbelievers, etc. Enemoser had made himself some powerful enemies, and when he moved to Innsbruck with his family in 1837, they did everything they could to make life difficult for him. He co-founded and became secretary of the Tyrolean Agricultural Society and their newsletter. He made many suggestions on how to improve soil fertility and grow more resistant crops. He encouraged, for example, farmers to grow more resistant potato crops. Uh, and different kinds of cereals, warned them that the future of viticulture lay in quality and not in quantity, and suggested varieties of grapes to grow. Uh, but most of all, he tried to convince them not to waste natural resources. For that purpose, he designed a new, more efficient kind of stove, which would enable families to save on wood. But all these activities did not generate an income, and every time he tried to launch himself into some new venture, like curing patients with salt uh, baths, invisible bureaucratic barriers would suddenly crop up and obstruct his project. He finally had to come to terms with the fact that the authorities and whoever was behind them was not going to let him make a living in Tyrol. So reluctantly, in 1841, he retreated to Munich, where he could count on a larger pool of patients. But in 1848, all of continental Europe was rocked by revolutions, and all the many despots, beginning with the Austro-Hungarian emperor, down to the myriad of little counts and dukes of Germany, had to make significant concessions. And one of them was an elected parliament that convened in Frankfurt to work on a new German constitution. The other one was freedom of the press. Enemoser didn't think twice. He rushed back to Tyrol and with his own personal funds founded the Innsbrucker Zeitung, a newspaper through which he and a few like-minded friends valiantly tried to propound the notion of civil rights, religious tolerance, freedom of speech in a society which considered all of these as threats to the authority of the emperor and of the church. We know all too well how the story ended. 
In June 1849, what remained of the Frankfurt Parliament, of which also Falmerayer was a member, was disbanded uh, militarily. Enemoser's newspaper was forced to close down by the uh, reinstated censorship authority in 1852. In 1854, the English translation of the history of magic appeared. It is doubtful that Enemoser ever got to see a copy of it. He had started on his own autobiography, but managed only to write one first magnificent chapter on his childhood in the Tyrolean mountains. He died September 19th in Egern on the Hohen, uh, uh, Egern on Lake Tegernsee in Bavaria, where his tomb is still looked after today. In the years that followed, Enemoser was deliberately forgotten. The few encyclopedias where his name appeared ridiculized him as a quack. His archive was partly destroyed, partly scattered over Germany and Austria. In 1921, a young medical student, Jakob Brehm, wrote his inaugural dissertation on Enemoser. He was able to talk, talk to the last surviving descendants and to transcribe some documents, which then went up in flames during World War II. Ironically, it was William Butler Yeats' interest in the history of magic and the fact that Ezra Pound remembered it in Pisa that led to a rediscovery of Enemoser in his own homeland in 2009 as part of the bicentennial celebration. The South Tyrolean History Museum of Schloss Tyrol uh, inaugurated an extensive special exhibit on Enemoser and his times, entitled For Freedom, Truth and Justice, the motto of Enemoser's short-lived newspaper. Catalogue appeared, a symposium was held, and in the course of three years we were able to locate the scattered remains of Enemoser's archive in over a dozen different collections and libraries, and his native village has just named a square after him all because of these tantalizing lines in Canto 83, preferring Enemoser on witches. Thank you. for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a talk by Dr. Siegfried Derauschewitz given at Rewriting the Future, A Hundred Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis held at Brunnenberg Castle, South Tyrol, Italy. For more, please visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net.
comprehension evokes a sympathetic feeling, something in there, staining the back seat, the whole feeling that means nothing to others. When understood, no further words need to be uttered. When involved with the opposite fascination, fellow travelers create a third mind. Beloved in love. Since in the beloved, One loves the parental resemblance. It is of life itself. Whether still or moving, the fellow conceivable that one may seek to experience in reality the destiny of the ancestor. What? 